is Andy Wakefield, and this is the Andy Wakefield Podcast. This is a place where stories are told that have never been heard before. Welcome to the Andy Wakefield Podcast. Thank you all so much for joining us. And thank you so much to the lovely, the brilliant, and the hard to get a hold of. Andy, we're so fortunate that today Cheryl Atkinson is with us. Carol, it's, it's wonderful to have you on. We've been going back and forth for many years now. I remember when you were, you, we did an interview at uh, CBS when you were still there. And you said to me after the interview, Andy, by the time we've edited this, I'll get a call from the money men upstairs. And within 15 minutes, the, <laughs> where they'll say, well, you have to pull this or our sponsors will, will remove their funding, their advertising. And the only thing that you were wrong on is I think it was five minutes that it, it, it took place in five minutes, but it, you were quite right. You subsequently left. And are you able to tell us a little bit about the circumstances of your leaving or is that sort sure. of subdued us? I've, I've actually written quite a bit about it in the book that comes out November 24th, which is called Slanted, because there was a lot of misreporting about me leaving. Let's see, one side falsely said that it was because there was so much liberal bias I left, which never came up in my departure discussions. I'm not saying there's not some of that, but that wasn't you know, the primary driver. And then the other side, the propagandist said I was fired because I'm conservative, stuff like that, which was also false, you know, totally false. So I tried to leave a year before I did. I literally packed up my office, Andy, and left without telling my agent ahead of time once I got my family to agree because I saw the whole industry, not just CBS, changing so much in terms of what they were willing to report and the censorship they were doing, self-censorship or allowing advertisers like the pharmaceutical industry to weigh in. I just didn't see finishing out my contract. And I didn't wanna be talked into staying because these problems were not fixable. So I, I didn't even tell them why. I think they knew in my mind, they knew why. And I just, on a Friday, called my agent and said, tell them I'm not coming back on Monday. And the way I, I came to that was, yes, I have a contract, but if I'm going to walk away from seven figures and my severance and so on, there's nothing they can do. I'm not a slave. They can't make me produce news stories. So I'm just not coming back. Long story short, it was very tough to get out of that contract in a way that I could walk away and they weren't willing to negotiate. They were forcing me to stay. And even though I said I, I wouldn't and they can't make me, there were certain things and discussions that were going on that were making it very difficult. In the end, the big, big boss at the time, Jeff Fager, who I like, he called me up to New York. He said he knew there were all kinds of things wrong. A lot of other people were complaining. He said, if you give me some time to fix this, and I said, how long? He said, six months. He was gonna address some things he thought you know, got at the heart of the problem regarding Scott Pelley's anchoring and general managing of the evening news and the executive producer at the time. So I agreed to stay and I stayed one more, almost one more full year before, you know, I, I decided this whole industry again was going down a track in a direction that really couldn't be turned. And so I did leave ahead of my contract. Right. You know, you are an endangered species, Charles. You are I, you know, I, I really sort of blow smoke. You are one of the finest journalists in the world and a, and a dying breed, so. <laughs> well, I'd like to say that, that that makes me very 
exclusive and special, but the truth is I feel like all I do is ordinary journalism that a lot of people were doing 20 years ago, 15 years ago. And you're right, it has become rare, not because I'm so accomplished or special, but because so few people are doing that kind of traditional journalism anymore because we're so overrun by narratives and propaganda. Well, it's integrity. That's what it is. It's, it's unusual. Uh, it's, it's almost um, an affliction to have integrity in journalism now. There's one example of your not-so-ordinary reporting, which you enlightened me about the other day, and that was in respect of the 2009 swine flu outbreak and the testing or the discontinuation of testing by the CDC and the reasons for that which you decided to investigate. Tell, tell us a little bit about that fascinating story and what the results were. Well, like a lot of stories I look into, I don't know, necessarily know much about them on the front end, but I got two tips that came in from totally different sources during the swine flu supposed epidemic. And both of them told me that CDC had quite suddenly, and according to these medical people, unexpectedly, surprisingly, issued guidance not to count swine flu cases anymore, not to test for them and report them in the middle of this epidemic with the emergency development of the vaccine. And I remember my one inside government source saying they either want to overcount or undercount the cases because he, he, that was his theory why they were doing this. He said, there's one or the other at play. And, he, and I remember him saying, and your job is to find out which it is. So the first thing I did was ask CDC for the results of all the tests to date because the most likely cases of swine flu had been tested in each state based on if you'd traveled to Mexico and had certain symptoms and you were most likely swine flu, you then usually got a lab test by the state and those were recorded and those are public information, at least they're supposed to be, and then CDC obtained those. So I just wanted to know at the time they wanted to quit counting flu, uh, swine flu cases, what did the data show? And of course, CDC wouldn't give me the data, even though it's public information. So I called all 50 states. And it's interesting, about half of them gave me the data without a problem. Half of them said I couldn't have it. And I had to tell them that they had to give it to me. It's public information. And the shocker was that almost none of it was swine flu. Almost none of the tests of the most likely cases of swine flu turned out to be swine flu, which told me that in the middle of all of this supposed emergency, CDC knew that whatever was out there were other upper respiratory infections that were not swine flu, and by the way, were not even flu at all, according to their testing, and yet had given out the word that everything that looked like flu was to be counted without a test as if it were swine flu. So all of these exaggerated numbers that we get from swine flu season that year Actually, most of it, based on their own tests, was, was unlikely swine flu or any kind of flu at all. And I'll give you just one number. You know, I made graphs of all the states, but California took 13,700 specimens, and only 2% was swine flu. 88% was negative for any kind of flu. I mean, think about that. Um, how about Alaska? They took a number of specimens, about 722. 1% was swine flu, 80, 93% were negative for any kind of flu. So this is what some of the states looked like at the time CDC was telling the public that there was a swine flu epidemic. 
Why do I feel like no, Cheryl? A, I'm I'm living, sure. We're living <laughs> in a, a deja sure. vu here, Andy. Is this a deja vu? I mean, it is indeed. It is, and you know, I wish I'd known that. I would have found its way into the movie, but um, that was clearly a story that made the nightly news, didn't it? And no, it didn't, because you know this is one of the reasons that weighed into why I left. It didn't have to do with liberal or conservative bias. But this was in 2009. This sort of thing became more frequent, and I had some great bosses. I mean, many great bosses over time, but. The one of the top guys at the company in the news division, when I told him these findings, he was blown away. He said, this is really one of the best and the only original stories I've seen about this swine flu epidemic. But when it got to evening news and I described the story, you kind of make your pitch, you tell them what the story is. The executive producer was sort of like, well, let's, um, this is not the time to do that. And I said, well, when would the time be? And she said, maybe when this is all over as a look back. And of course, that just tells me it's so absurd. You know, you, I learned not to argue that because it was just, when they say crazy things like that, it just means it's not going to air. You're wasting your breath. So I did publish it online and people can go look at swine flu cases overestimated. In fact, I think if you Google swine flu and overestimated, you can see that. And um. You know, I think some of the news clips gone, I had asked, I had sent a producer to ask the head of the CDC at the time, you know, question about this. I don't think that survived the internet over the years since then when these stories have been translated. But the point is, you know, at the time, for whatever reason, I could get stuff printed on the internet. And this is true of investigative reporters at the other networks too, that the news division would not air on their broadcasts. So a lot of my work, some of my best work, aired online at CBS, even when I couldn't get a story on TV. It's just shocking. I mean, uh, you know, just when you think you've seen the depths of the iceberg under the water, you realize there's a whole nother iceberg. And well, may I say that in my, so in my book Slanted, I hope people will consider pre-ordering it anywhere. It's slanted how the news media taught us to love censorship and hate journalism. I mentioned that. How important is that story? I mean, maybe you think the swine flu story isn't all that important in the scheme of things, but I then talk in the book about how that experimental vaccine that was quickly produced came out and a lot of people took it. And I wouldn't say there was a high proportion of injuries and deaths, but there were some, in, there were some injuries and deaths from the vaccine that were paid out by the government. And I can't help but wonder that if my news, if that story and information had been more widely distributed and we had aired it on the CBS Evening News and other reporters had picked it up, maybe some people wouldn't have gotten the vaccine who didn't really need it or were not at high risk. And maybe some lives could have been saved or maybe some injuries might not have happened. If, you know, these, these do have, these stories and the self-censorship of them do have consequences in some cases that I think are very important. You've been listening to the Andy Wakefield Podcast. To continue the conversation, go to 1986theact.com slash membership, where for $5 a month, you can subscribe and access the Andy Wakefield Podcast in its entirety and much more.